0: Welcome to the podcast of Seven Rivers Villages Church in Wildwood, Florida. We are a multi generational community of grace on mission, and you are always invited to join us online or in person. Learn more about us at SevenRiversVillages.org. If you have a Bible with you this morning, let me invite you to turn to Mark chapter 5. If you don't, that's okay. We have some on the Screen. If your Bible starts talking, we're going to run it outside and stomp on it. It will be okay. It's good. It's good. We're good. It's all. It's good. <laughs> At least this, week. this week. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. We. You know. It, I, I remember uh, when phones started being a problem in worship and things, and uh, it hasn't changed. It's just. It's. It's always going to be there for all of us. So. Um, This is an interesting passage. Last week we looked at Jesus calming a storm and in that passage Jesus did something that no one expected him to be able to do. He did something that only God could do. He he spoke to a storm and it was completely calm. And so that's showing that Jesus has control over the physical world, the the natural world that God has made. Jesus has control over that. And today we're looking at something a little bit different. It's not Jesus' control over the natural world. It's his control over what we might call the spiritual realm and and the evils that are there. So Jesus has all the power. And so we're going to be looking this morning at Mark 5. And so if you're willing and able in honor of God and his word, let me invite you to stand as we read Mark chapter 5. They came to the other side of the sea. rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs... Thus, in the reading of God's word, every word of it is true, and he's given it to us because he loves us. Let's pray and ask him to bless us as we study it this morning. Well, I've never seen anything like this, Lord Jesus. I don't think I've ever seen um, something that seems so fantastical as yes, what you did for this man so long ago. And yet, um, the Bible is very clear. You have worked in my life and in the lives of all in here who have called upon you in just as powerful a way to bring us to salvation. You've gone to bat for us. You have fought for us. You have laid down your life for us. You have secured our salvation. And for that we are grateful. And so we pray this morning as we look at something that's a little bit different, a little bit odd to us, we pray that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see things that we could not see on our own and be able to bring those into our lives. Would you bless us? And Lord, I pray that you'd bless me. Uh, You know, the frailty of mind and heart and soul and body. um, uh, That describes me continually. And so I pray that you would be my strength this morning, that you would help me to see Jesus and to proclaim him clearly. Would you bless us and be with us this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please have a seat. I'm going to bring this up here. I'm going to lift this up a little higher on here, not so I can get further away from you, but so that I don't have to bend over and show you my bald spot while I raise this thing. So that's that's part of it. That's good. So I know this passage may seem fanciful and mythical. Um, there's a man who is possessed by a demon, and uh, this is outside of most of our everyday occurrences. And many people find themselves skeptical, not just because it's outside of our everyday experience. Uh, And not just because it may be, uh, you know, we're skeptical of like miracle stories or demon possession stories, but we find ourselves skeptical because all of us in here have been influenced in some way by forces and voices in our culture that we might not be aware of. And one of those is the voice of something called uh, philosophical naturalism, uh, sometimes philosophical materialism. These two things are really related. Philosophical materialism is the idea, it's a belief system, that only things that are material exist. There are no spiritual anything. It's only the physical world. And, and then philosophical naturalism follows suit and says that any knowledge that we have that's true knowledge can only be gleaned from the material world around us. So what it's saying is there is no such a thing that exists besides what it has, is made of matter. So the physical world is all that exists. So Christians do not agree with that belief system about the material world. In fact, most of the world doesn't agree with that. Christians do not agree with that. In fact, as Christians, we look for the best answers to our questions about the world around us, and we believe that the answers to those questions come from, yes, the study of the physical world, but also from a belief and a deep uh, uh, acceptance of the reality that there are some things that are spirit, that are spiritual. We believe in a God who is an infinite, eternal, and unchangeable spirit, who made the physical world around us. And we don't see belief in that God and the existence of a physical world and to be in any way, shape, or form in any sort of conflict. We believe that our attempts to understand the world around us through scientific investigation give us a deep understanding of the world around us, but we also believe that God has revealed himself to the world and that our knowledge of the world is not complete unless we bring him into that understanding. So sometimes people believe that faith and science are in conflict. They're not. Because philosophical naturalism is itself a belief system. It's a faith system that people say is in, is in complete accord. Philosophical naturalism and science are not the same thing. They're two different things. In fact, a lot of Christians are scientists. A lot of scientists are Christians. So these are two different things. Philosophical naturalism may be in conflict with belief in God, but... Uh, science and belief in God are companions. So I need to say that, because this seems really weird in this passage, right? We acknowledge, as a result of all of this, that we have both physical and spiritual dynamics to our humanity, and so does the world around us. So we can search out and understand things in the physical world and understand spiritual realities, and as we step into this passage, we encounter something about the spiritual world that we may not uh, have ever encountered. There's a man in this passage who has been overrun by spiritual forces beyond his control. This is not mental illness that's being talked about here. Um, They had categories for understanding something when somebody, they talked about Jesus at one point as being out of his mind, Uh, but that's not the way they talk about this. They're talking about this as a, a real possession, somebody being overrun by spiritual forces that are beyond his control. This is something else. So the question comes up maybe for you is, how does a person get a demon inside of them? Is it going to Disney World? Probably not. Is it watching a Super Bowl halftime show? Probably not. I actually have done some reading uh, uh, about this this week because I was curious about the question. And I read testimonies, accounts from people who were involved with occultic activities who came out of that uh, into Christianity. And one of the things that comes through a lot is, that people give themselves over to spiritual forces. They purposefully seek that out in order to get guidance, get power to find a fuller life is the way they understand it. But what they find is as they get into that, they find that the thing that they thought would give guidance leaves them lost and the thing that they thought would give them power leaves them powerless and the thing that they thought would give them life actually takes life from them. And so as we step into this passage, that's what we're seeing is, is Jesus shows up to rescue a human being and, and broadly, more broadly, human beings from spiritual forces we cannot hope to understand, let alone overcome on our own. So, are you ready to talk about this? This is okay. So, it's here in the passage. Uh, they were surprised uh, at this, as we're surprised, uh, not because they didn't believe in demons and things, but because there's an unanticipated rescue that's taking place. So, we encounter a man who's in a bad state, he's in a bad place. Uh, he had literal demons within him that were distorting and threatened him. He lived among the tombs, which was a place nobody wanted to go. It was a place of death, living. The living would not go there, and it would make you unclean without, with anything to do with God. So what he's communicating in that, what he's doing, is putting himself into a place where God will not enter among the tombs. This is an unclean place. So his miserable existence was completely opposed to the life-giving God. And when Jesus shows up, he's not running up to worship. He's running up because he feels threatened. And I was thinking this is a little bit like high school kids who had a party and they didn't think their their mom was coming back to the next morning. And all of a sudden she shows up at 10 o'clock that night and they're kicking cans under the bed and everything. And somebody runs to the door and says, hey, what are you doing here? We weren't expecting you until tomorrow. And that's a little bit, it seems, what's going on. The demon seems surprised to see Jesus. Verse 7, what have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, by God, do not torment me. Now, what did he mean? Uh, Matthew adds a little phrase to the end of that uh, in his account of this. and it's, He says, uh, do not torment me before the appointed time. So it seems that the demon didn't, it's like a lot of people at that point, Is they thought there was going to be an end date to all of history, and that's when the judgment would come, and God would come back. And they had no conception that the Son of God would come in the middle of time to bring redemption and to do battle against the forces of evil and redeem his people for himself. Uh, they didn't conceive of that either. So he's asking, is this why you're here? He didn't expect Jesus to come back. And so Jesus asked the question, what is your name? Because he, he's called this demon to come out and uh, the demon's still here and Jesus says what is your name now what would you expect him to say to that You know, if we, if we gave that man a name you might expect him to say Tommy my name's Tommy but that's not what he says he says legion and the only reason you would expect him to say legion in answer to that question is because you've read this passage before well of course he always says legion every time I read this he says legion but they didn't they probably weren't expecting that either right? He, well, it's Tommy. We've known, he's been out here living among the tombs for years. But it's legion, and legion is an interesting term because legion is it's a Roman military term for an entire infantry, uh, perhaps as many as 5,000 or 6,000 strong. So this, this is not one lone sentry demon. This is not simply a scout. This is kind of an encamped battalion that's in this man, some people say 5,000, 6,000 demons might be in here. And that may make no, make no sense to us. If we think about demons as occupying space like water, you know, like the average body can only hold about 35 liters of demon. You know, if you think about it that way, then you're probably going to, you're bringing in our understanding into that. We don't really know uh, what composes or what the substance is of, of demons. But what it's communicating to us is this is an entrenched evil. Tommy, whatever his name is, is not really himself any longer. Everything that is Tommy is infested and infected with whatever this force is that's inside of him. Jesus is speaking to something that has its talons in Tommy, something driving him, something that has him in his clutches. Now, how would you root that out? How would you get that out? Tommy can't get out of the situation. So this man is outmatched and Jesus is outnumbered 6,000 to 1. And here, as I was reading through this, and maybe you, you're as nerdy as I am, uh, I, I thought about The Lord of the Rings, the second movie. And some of you are going, oh, he's going to do a Tolkien illustration. I'm going to do Tolkien. So, so in the second movie, it's a fantasy movie for those of you who don't know, and it's based on the writings of J.R.R. Tolkien, The Lord of the Rings trilogy. And there are several Uh, characters in Tolkien's writings that represent Jesus. So there's Aragorn, Gandalf, Sam, and then Frodo. and So different aspects of these people represent aspects of Christ. And there's one scene in the second movie where Gandalf, who represents in some ways the power of Jesus that's there and the otherness of Jesus, um, they go into the stronghold of Theoden the king. And Theoden has been overtaken by an evil presence, an evil force, a wizard by the, I know it's a wizard, it's nerdy, and so Saruman is this demon, this uh, this kind of demonic uh, wizard's name, and he's taking control of Theoden, and Theoden is completely overrun, it's almost like he's dead, so his his skin is white and pasty and swollen, his eyes are, are milky glass, he can't see, he doesn't talk with his own voice, he talks with the voice of Sar- Saruman coming through him, and he's there, and he, and Gandalf is there to rescue him. And so he stands in front of this personage who's no longer controlled. Theoden's not in his right mind. And Gandalf says, I will draw you Saruman as poison is drawn from a wound, which is a fair imitation. So, (laughs) And and as he's doing battle with with Saruman over Theoden, he casts out Saruman, and Saruman goes flying backwards, and then they show Theoden's face, and with the magic of movies, all of a sudden, the pasty, corpse-like face begins to be- get its color back, and shrink down, and his flesh is restored, and his eyes are restored, and his niece that he loves, and then Eowyn comes running up to him, and she's, she's there watching this process, and everyone's amazed at the, at the recovery of this man, and when he sees her for the first time in years, he recognizes her, and he says, I know your face. And it's this beautiful moment because in is back and he's restored. As we come into this, that's a great picture. Tommy wasn't seeking help. He couldn't help himself, but Jesus came to bring it. Thomas Watson wrote this. He said, God shows mercy, not because we deserve it, but because he delights in mercy. And in this passage, uh, God shows mercy. Jesus shows mercy, not because... This man is seeking it because Jesus delights to show mercy and to rescue his, his people. This, was, this is not Tommy. It was, it was what Tommy had become due to sin and evil. And when then Jesus casts out everything that's not Tommy, drives out everything that's legion, and he leaves everything that's Tommy. He frees Tommy, this guy, and, and this man is now himself again. So this man has himself back. His family has him back, and his village has him back. He's back. So the question comes up, I think, sometimes, why did Jesus release the demons into the pigs? And one commentary gave a couple of reasons why this might be the case is, you know, pigs were unclean to Jews, and so it's shown that these unclean spirits are being driven out. But why, you know, they rush down into the water, they're destroyed. Well, some people think that perhaps it was to show all the people there that this was not a hoax. This was something that was really taking place. All of these legion of demons entered into these pigs, simultaneously they leave this man who's now in his right mind and the pigs rush down. And so it shows something left this guy and it was, it was real. So it's a verification or a sign that this, is, this has really happened. Another possibility is that the size of the herd was meant to show everybody what exactly had been going on with this man. He, had a, he did have a legion inside of him. But there's another possibility too is that with the death of the pigs who were never going to come back, they all died and rushed down into the water. It was a picture to this man and to this whole community. These demons have been vanquished. Like these pigs, they're never coming back. This man is free. And so it's a, it's a picture of the grace of Jesus to completely and utterly save us. And it's a reminder for us, right? Because there are people that when I'm around them, they give me goosebumps. They're people that I sometimes think are irredeemable. And it's because of assumptions that I have based on revulsion and self-protection. And I excuse my loathing. But what he's showing us in this passage is this is the most loathsome person to a Jew. And he's not irredeemable. That Jesus in his life brings about a huge change. And for some of you, uh, that, gives, that should give you greater courage to pray. Pray for people you love. They're not irredeemable. And for those of you who, you know, you're walking down the street and you see somebody, sometimes we are frightened, you know. Um, I'm pretty sure I could take most people in a fight, but there are a few people, I'm just kidding. Um, You know, I'm walking down the street and I see people and I want to keep my distance from them. And and maybe I should based on some factors, but that shouldn't stop me from praying for that person. Instead of feeling that revulsion inside of me and and self-congratulatory that I'm not like that person, to pray for that person. That person's not irredeemable. And so we, we find this incredible victory on Jesus' part. But we head into another part of the passage where we see a, really a captivating compassion here. Mark chapter five, verse 15. They came to Jesus and saw the formerly demon-possessed man sitting there clothed in his right mind, and they were afraid. Right? So they're afraid. At one level, the detail of the man sitting there is meant to highlight to everybody that's reading this is Jesus really did this. He really accomplished with great power the healing and rescue of this man. This man, once demon assaulted, wild frantic yelling, is now sitting quiet and at peace for the first time. Proof positive of what has happened. And so Mark in his gospel is is wanting the readers like us to look at this and to come to a recognition that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. In fact, the demon calls him that. He, he completely gets who Jesus is. It's about to drive him out. But he wants us to know that's who Jesus is. Um, but at another level, the level of human experience, this is a really tender moment. He's sitting there. And in, in Luke's gospel, where he's, he's recounting this event, he, he gives us a detail that, uh, that's not really here in the same way is he's not simply there. He's sitting at Jesus' feet. He's right there beside Jesus. And you get the sense, you know, it it took a while for all these herdsmen to run out and tell a city and to tell the countryside for everybody to show up here. They've been sitting here for a while. And Jesus has been talking. Were they talking like old friends? Or maybe it was like talking with a trauma counselor helping this man process what he just went through, all the shame, all the guilt, the loss of years and time that he can't quite remember in place. And so Jesus is here helping him. Now, the, the terminology of sitting at Jesus' feet is used elsewhere of describing his relationship with his disciples. In fact, if you looked at Luke 10:39, it says that Mary was sitting at the Lord's feet listening to his teaching and soaking it up like all the other disciples. So that's the image, is he's sitting... At Jesus' feet, and he's as a disciple, and, and listening to the words of life that would bring transformation for him. I mean, don't you get the sense that as Jesus is talking to him, because of what Jesus is going to ask him to do a little bit in a little bit that the few words that they said together, that with every word of Jesus, the old darkness would be dispelled, that memories would be transformed, and the peace of God would begin to settle into this guy's soul he needed Jesus to speak truth to him. Now, I I want you to notice in this passage, like we a lot of times as Christians, and I do this, is we focus a ton on the forgiveness of Jesus. And we should. It's amazing because I'm a sinner and we're all sinners and we need the forgiveness of Jesus. But I want you to recognize that in this passage, what Jesus is doing is he doesn't just forgive this man. Right? Rescuing him and these kinds of things. He's not just forgiving him. He doesn't forgive him and then say, but, you know, the demons can stay. He actually is dealing with the destructive influences in this man's life. So he didn't forgive him and then allow him to run back into that same kind of destructive life or leave him to the same pagan culture that probably led to that demon possession in the first place. Nor did Jesus forgive him, uh, release him from demonic control, and then leave him with all of his old baggage to guide his behavior. Because the next thing you know, this guy goes running off into the graveyard, and people are saying, wait, what are you doing? And his response would be, I don't know what else to do. This has been my life for the past couple of years. This is like home to me. I don't know where else to go or what else to do. So the truth of Jesus needed to replace the darkness and dark understanding that it was in his soul. We need that. We need to sit at the feet of Jesus. Particularly somebody who's been through something like this. So I read stories this week of people who were converted to Christianity out of occultic kind of stuff and uh, there was one person that I read that was very open in a, in a good way and what she said was she said most people want the salacious details what was that like you know we want to, we want to hear the horror story we want the, we want the Hollywood movie kind of version of things and, and this person didn't go there uh, but she was deeply involved in an occultic community with demons, spirits, abuse. And she talked about coming out of that and how difficult it was to step back into healthy, normal relationships, even with people in the church. And it was, it was really interesting and sad to listen to her talk about the damaging effects of spiritual darkness upon her while she was a prisoner and then even after she got out. Because it affected her thinking, right? It, it's the way the synapses fire, the way she looked at the world... And this is what she wrote. She said, they are going, the person who comes out of that, including her and anybody you might know that comes out of that, they are going to be embarrassed about their past and full of confusion. They are in real need of spiritual guidance. They need help. But then she said this, you don't have to convince them of the reality of evil, but it will be hard to convince them of the reality of goodness particularly God's forgiveness and his love. That's hard. And but, but it's not just true of her, it's true of all of us. Anybody who is coming to faith in Christ, yes, we need forgiveness, but we also need to have our minds and our understanding reshaped by Jesus so we don't go into the same destructive patterns. I remember I told a story about a friend who was in ministry years ago, and he was at, the, he was at Florida State University, and he was on campus staff there with campus ministry, Reform University Fellowship, and uh, he had two guys that had come to Florida State University uh, to have their animal house experience, and those of you who are old enough to know that, what that is, then that was what they were wanting, and uh, the rest of you, don't, don't Google that, and, uh, and so they're having their experience, and they didn't think that Jesus was going to show up their sophomore year with both these guys in a Bible study they were in with this campus minister, and they're brought to faith in Jesus. It's fantastic. And so a couple of, a couple of weeks later, uh, he finds out they're still in the hookup culture. Uh, that was a lot of the college life for where these guys were. And so their campus minister came to them and said, Guys, what are you doing? You can't do this. And he showed them several passages of scripture. And their genuine response was, we had no idea. That's what the Bible actually says about that and they immediately stopped. Somebody snap better than me. Thank you. Okay, so they immediately stopped because it's like, that's what the Bible says. They just didn't know it, right? So we, we have these patterns, and when we're forgiven, we don't just automatically go back to where we, we should be in our thinking about the world and the way God designed things. We need time to grow in that, and so part of what God is, is doing is he's not simply forgiving this man and then leaving him under the old power. He's Jesus is sitting with him to redirect him. And so when it comes of time eventually for Jesus to leave, this man is saying, please, please let me go with you, please. He's begging. He wants to stay with Jesus because don't you think he knows when I'm with you, I am in my right mind. With you for the first time in my life, in a long time, I am me again. Jesus redeemed this man. So, one moment he's raging against the world, God and Himself and everything, and the next he's sitting in his right mind at Jesus' feet. Everyone else tried to shackle him in order to shackle the monsters inside, and Jesus was the only one who could free him from the monsters that were inside. And I think that we all need to hear this because we all come to Jesus with destructive influences and internal tendencies. We have our monsters that threaten us and threaten others. What's your monster? you have it. Even if, you, even if you're a Christian here this morning, you have the residue of something that patterns you fall back into. So what's your monster? You think about our ki- children's story. They give us good patterns for thinking about monsters, right? The troll and the three billy goats gruff. Uh, you know the story where there's the bridge over him and he doesn't want anybody walking and the small billy goat, big and big, bigger, big, big. You know the story. So basically this guy is okay by himself and he's okay as long as everybody does what he wants them to do. And when they don't, he goes on the attack. Does that sound familiar? Rebecca's like, I live with that guy. (laughs) Or the witch from Hansel and Gretel. She builds this candy house for the kids. She comes and fattens them up because she has to consume them, right? I knew a lady, she's not my wife, by the way. I knew a lady that she poured her life into her kids, and when her kids went off to college and stopped calling as much and stopped doing as much with her, she got so angry and bitter about it because she got her life from her kids, vicariously living through them. Right? Or the wolfman. The wolfman is fine most of the time. He can contain the monster within. But when the circumstances are right, circumstances under which he has no control, the old hungers and appetites come back out and he can't restrain himself. And he leaves in his wake tattered, broken people. We have this going on. And the answer for this man in this passage was Jesus. And the answer for us is Jesus. Whatever it is, Jesus is the hope for the monsters that are still at work with inside us. It has to be Jesus because Jesus confronts our monsters. We need this because the gospel is not simply a matter from getting out from under guilt. It's having our minds, our hearts freed, cleared, purged, reshaped by spending time with Jesus, sitting with him. And so, you know, this man here has just a few hours, maybe tops, with Jesus before Jesus is asked to leave and get onto the boat. But we have, some of us, a lifetime where we can spend in the means of grace of reading the Bible in prayer, in fellowship, in community with other people who are holding forth the truth of God for us so that our minds and our hearts can be reshaped by the truth of God so that we, the monsters, they don't have to be chained anymore. The monsters are just driven out and they're not apart anymore. So this man, uh, he wants to stay with Jesus because he knows I'm better with you than I am without you. He wanted to go with Jesus. and Now, Jesus knew that eventually they would be parted. Jesus would have to go to Jerusalem, and Jesus would have to go to the cross, and then Jesus would go into the grave, and then Jesus would be resurrected, and then Jesus would go and ascend to heaven and be on the throne. So eventually they're going to be parted. Um, but he says no to this man at this point about coming with us because he has given this man what he needs to begin to thrive in Jesus. Faith. This man has faith. He's, he's acting as someone here who is faith. And we saw, uh, we saw earlier, you know, we saw this last couple of weeks, is disciples are people who come to Jesus, stay with Jesus, and want to follow Jesus and live in accordance with his leading. And what Jesus is doing with this man here is he's, He's got a man here who wants to follow him wherever he goes. And Jesus is telling him, you don't have to follow me where I'm going physically right now. You can follow me by doing what I'm calling you to do. So Mark chapter 5, verses 18 to 19. Jesus was getting into the boat. The man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So, follow me there. You don't have to be geographically present with me to follow me. Trust me, believe me, do what I'm calling you to do there. So the apostles, this really mirrors in some ways the Great Commission where he says, go and make disciples of all nations. The apostles are being called to do that, but he's calling this man to go home and there are a ton of reasons why, but, I think largely, he says, you go and tell your, your friends. You go and tell the people you know. Be restored to them. So Jesus gives the man a message. Tell them, one, what God has done for you, and two, how he has had mercy on you. And that's how we do evangelism, is tell them what God has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Go Go and tell other people the story of Jesus and your monster, of Jesus and his deliverance, of Jesus and his love. That's your message. He's not calling, he didn't tell this this man to go into the Decapolis and tell them how bad they are. Go and tell them how good God is, that he has done this for you. So the story, and the story he's going to tell is not the story about how he is now, I'm now good and religious. I used to be this, but now I'm this. And Jesus makes, good, uh, makes people good and religious too. No, the story he's supposed to tell is the story of how Jesus can rescue anybody from the monsters that grip our souls. Tell them how God met you at your worst moment, your sin, your addiction, your dark place, your loss of control, your self-destructive behavior. Tell them. And this is really hard to do because we don't want people to know that part of our story. We want them to know the happy parts of our story. And even when we're trying to sell Jesus to other people, we're trying to sell ourselves to other people too. Telling the good things about us that we've done for Jesus, right? We do this constantly. But what happens when you're demon-possessed and everybody knows it it's like, well, there is no good part to my story except to the part where Jesus steps in, right? One of the stories I read this week was a story of a lady. Um, this is on Christianity Today. They have a testimony section. I really I enjoy reading through that a lot. I find it encouraging. Uh, this woman, uh, Doreen Virtue, I think is her name. You know that name? Okay, okay. Doreen Virtue. And Doreen was, uh, she got a degree in like therapy and counseling, psychoanalysis and things when she was in college, started into that field of like helping other people, but then she started to dabble in new age spirituality. And in terms of new age spirituality, she was drawn in and that began to subsume everything that she'd been teaching. So basically she became a new age teacher and guru. And so she would, this, she was making a ton of money doing this. So they, uh, they lived on a ranch of 50 acres in Hawaii. That's some prime real estate. They had a lot of money. And so they would fly her all over the world. She had all these adoring people that are, like, loved her and wanted to hear. She, in her mind, what she says is, I, was, I, I told myself I was helping people by bringing them positive things into their lives. So she... Uh, um, she, has. she said her literature had been translated into 39 different languages all over the world. She did this for 22 years. So she was driving in her car one day, and she liked to, you know, New Age spirituality can be somewhat syncretistic, where they're borrowing and dabbling with other things. And Jesus was a part of her New Age message, where Jesus was just kind of a spirit guide to help you. He's just more enlightened than the rest of us, but he wasn't the Son of God. She found herself listening to satellite radio, and there's a sermon by Alistair Begg who came on, and he was preaching on a passage where he talked about um, the, it, the itching ears of people who want false teachers to say what their hearts want to hear. I want to hear that message. And so she heard that and realized, that's me. And so for the first time in her life, she said she had conviction in her heart. So she started to read the Bible. And she started in the Old Testament. And she got to Deuteronomy chapter 18, where where the Lord is condemning divination and seeking after spirits and all sorts of things to do with exactly what she was doing with New Age spirituality, calling on demons, calling on spirits and bringing them in. And she read that and it broke her. And she was on the floor and she said, I am sorry, I am so sorry, I didn't know. And she became a Christian as a result of that. So her message, you know, 22 years, she's wrong. 22 years, she has led people astray. 22 years, she has probably led people into something similar to what this man may have been facing. And she saw it. So what's her story? She begs people not to buy her books, which they still sell in stores. She begs people not to do that. And she has said about, she wrote wrote a book about herself, other things, to try to get people out of that kind of lifestyle. And this is a great quote I read this week, not from her, but kind of about her situation and our situation. Your ministry is found where you've been broken. Your testimony is found where you've been restored. So this man, in this passage, of all people, Jesus called to go into, go home and tell the story and he didn't just tell it to his family, but Jesus sent him into the whole area. He goes to the Decapolis, which is this 10-city area that's here. And it says that he, he went into the Decapolis and, and told how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled, right? So a few chapters later, Jesus goes back into the, the Decapolis, and these same people who said, go away, we're afraid, don't, we don't want anything to do with you. You get back in that boat and you go over there. When they hear this man's story, when Jesus comes later, they flocked to Jesus. Because this man had been preaching. This, is, this was my monster. This was me. You all know it. You see what Jesus has done. Jesus has this kind of power and this forgiveness. This is the mercy of our God. That's powerful, right? A man who was, a, who was possessed by demons becomes a great spokesman for the gospel, right? Nobody's irredeemable. But the thing that gets me about this story is thinking about the human element in it. What was that like for him to go back home? I don't know how old he was. Let's imagine he's in his 20s. He's been living in the tombs for a decade. He shows up at home. How does his mom respond? You think she's still on her feet or do you think her face is in her apron and she is weeping? And his brothers, his families, and others come to him, Tommy, Tommy, what are you doing here? What, what happened to you? The last time we saw you, you were running naked through a graveyard with cuts all over you. What, how are you here? What happened? And the story, Jesus happened. Jesus happened. And here's my story. Tell your story. Uh, as one preacher said, evangelism is just one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. That's our story. Let's pray. That's dramatic. That is a dramatic story of this man that you rescued, Lord Jesus. And in this room, this room is filled with dramatic stories. Maybe not of a demon possession and a release, but of you intervening into the broken lives of broken people redeeming, restoring reconciling that you would shed your blood for someone like me to pay for my sins that you would shed your blood for anybody at all that is a powerful story of your grace and your goodness Mm. you don't show mercy to us because we're deserving, you show mercy because you delight to show mercy to people like us We pray that what we've looked at in this passage would resonate in our souls, that it would produce fruit in our lives. Would you bless us and would you be with us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for joining us on this podcast, a production of Seven Rivers Villages Church in Wildwood, Florida. Learn more at sevenriversvillages.org.